Well, as you can tell, I'm not in the Kyle studio in Embassy Church in Washington, D.C. today. Don't worry, we did not renovate it. But in all honesty, uh, I'm in the midst of navigating two uh, family emergencies in my extended family. And honestly, it's been a really rough week as I was listening back to the message that I shared on Philippians 4. I feel like I was having to listen and learn and rehearse joy in my own life and story because of what life circumstances look like for me for the past week or 10 days or so. So I want to say thank you to my life group for for praying with me, praying for me, praying over my family members. They know a little bit more about what's going on, even if you don't know um, all the details. Hey, would you would you lift up my family, uh, my extended family, as we try to navigate where to go from here? Sometimes life will give you circumstances where, unfortunately, there's not going to be uh, an easy to wrap up solution. There's not an end date in sight. Uh, there's not even all of your questions about what got us here, how does this happen, really get answered. But this all brought me back to something that I learned from Sean Gallion. Now, Sean is a missionary in Spain, and uh, we'll have links to the works that he's doing so you can hear more. But he actually started uh, started out, I think, early in his ministry. He was actually with DC Chi Alpha at Georgetown, was leading Georgetown, um, So that's pretty cool, so that connection to the city. But anyways, he he would say this phrase um, that if if the gospel um, doesn't work in in Papua New Guinea, um, then it's not the gospel. In other words, in order to kind of decolonize, de-Americanize, de-Westernize, de-individualize our gospel, we have to ask, like, does it work in another context? Uh, A famous theologian uh, put that same type of question this way. All theology must work um, on the children's floor of a hospital. Now, I know that's like a very intense image, and believe me, that hits a little bit close to home for some things that my extended family is dealing with. But I think it reminds me um, that the gospel, the good news, isn't just for me and my individual experienced or so personalized that it loses its weight, but that the gospel is so big that it should be able to be accepted, received, and feel like good news to those who live very different lives and very different cultures in very different circumstances. So as we prepare in this kind of series and community experiment called Lent, it's not just for those of us that are um, living on a mountaintop. It's not just for those of us that feel like, man, this is our best year yet. No, this is also for those of us who are finding, finding life a little bit difficult. This is for those of us who are needing God to work in big and mighty ways. This is for those of us that are finding it hard at times to hope and trust again that even when we don't see it, that he's working and that he's moving, and that he's active in our lives. And sometimes that's a gift that, man, I may not feel it, I may not see it, but I can trust it because he's good. Well, I think a lot about the stories we tell reflect who we are. And that's one of the things that Sean's question kind of brings up, like, does the gospel that I talk about reveal the true heart of Jesus, or does it reveal my own aspirations? 
and desires. And that's kind of what we deconstructed a little bit last week in Philippians 4, particularly in verse 13. Like we bring our own ideas and perspectives to a passage, and then we end up inserting those ideas, thinking that they're in the text itself. Ideas of success, ideas of um, that promotion, ideas of comfort and ease. Now, there are many comforting verses in Scripture, but I have to be careful that I don't read my experiences into Scripture in such a way that I lose what the Spirit is trying to communicate. Well, what I love about where we're going in Lent is that we're going to be taking our cues from John. Primarily, we're going to be studying over the next 40 days or so uh, in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is unique. It's different than the other three gospel accounts that we have in the New Testament. It opens up with this beautiful poem, uh, John 1, 1, like in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The W is capitalized there. Uh, Spoiler alert, I don't know if we'll get into it next week, but just to give you a, a preview, the Word isn't the Bible. The Word is Jesus, if we read at the end of that poem a few verses later. It's Jesus. That's why we say in Chi Alpha that, man, there's a perfect theology, but it's not a system of thought. It can't be delivered in a book or a set of doctrinal statements. It's a person, and his name is Jesus. What's really interesting, too, about the Gospel of John is that John has an opportunity to put his fingerprint, his name, in this story that he has to know is going to become one of the greatest stories ever told, and yet he doesn't use his name uh, in referring to authorship once, but he does in four or five places refer to himself as he's telling the story and living in the story as the disciple that Jesus loved, as the beloved. I mean, think about that for a moment. Let's, Let's pause and really consider that. He doesn't talk about his accomplishments or his accolades, and he doesn't even talk about his closeness Um, to Jesus in contrast to maybe the other disciples, because John was a part of like an inner circle of three or four of the 12. But instead, he has based his whole identity on how God, how Jesus loved him. He doesn't talk about leaving his vocation and following Jesus kind of as this traveler with no place to stay most days, who's hoping for a person of peace from town to town. He lived that, he experienced that, he talks about that, but his identity marker is the love of God. He sees himself as the beloved. He understands that the human experience is to be loved by God. We'll share it in the, in the links or in the notes tab. There's this incredible guided meditation that I love out of Practice Tribe. And it's just this reminder, this prayer that we can enter that helps me, maybe it will help you, rest in this idea that we are loved by God. A.W. Tozer said that the most important thing we think about is what we think about when we think about God. That's the most important thing about a person is how they view God. And I love how John takes it a step further and saying, my identity isn't just in how I view God, but in how God views me. John doesn't just have an accurate perspective of who Jesus is, but it's so big and expansive, yet it's so intimate that he knows accurately how Jesus thinks of him. 
It reminds me of someone else close to Jesus, James, the brother of Jesus. Get that. Jesus has a sibling, and that sibling must have the most interesting sibling, I don't want to say rivalry, but dynamic. And of course, it took James a while to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, right? Imagine your sibling, your brother or sister, claiming that they're the Messiah. You're like, yeah, you're a goody two-shoes. I haven't really seen you sin. But to go from blameless to the I am, that's a huge leap. And yet later in life, James, the brother of Jesus, not only believes that Jesus is the Messiah, he believes that he died conquering death and sin, was raised to life. And then he writes part of the New Testament. And maybe one of the verses that I quote the most, it means the most to me personally, especially in this difficult time, is found in James 4. And I believe it's verse 8. I'm going off of memory. Uh, And it's this idea that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Now, I've said it before, but it's worth repeating that God always takes initiative, right? He's not there kind of sitting on the couch or cloud waiting for us to pursue him. No, he pursued us first at creation and then second at the cross. And then from there as believers, the more that we pursue God, the more that he meets us. One of my friends uh, reminded me this week, he is a part of Chi Alpha in Queens, New York. Uh, and he reminded me of this phrase that I love that I grew up saying as a student in Chi Alpha is that you're as close to God as you want to be. That doesn't mean there won't be difficult moments or there won't be seasons that feel like he might be a little bit hidden. But man, the word of God's scriptures are there for us. They reveal the true word, capital W, Jesus. The Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, is living inside of you, helping you to look more like Jesus. And then you have this community of other believers, other Jesus followers. One of the most interesting stories to me in the Gospel of John, and we'll get through it in our daily readings during Lent, whether you have the journal or you're looking at the plan online, we'll have the links, but it's dccafa.com slash Lent, and you can access all that a click away from Bible Gateway, is in John, I believe it's chapter 5. And there's this man who has a physical ailment. In fact, he can't walk. He's paralyzed. And the scriptures tell us that for over 30 years, He has been trying to get into this pool uh, that it was believed at the time that the first person to kind of dip their toe or foot in, they would be healed. Now, I can't explain all that. I don't understand all that, but I understand why that guy was there. And then he must have seen over those 38 years, those thousands of days, people walk away healed. But because of his ailment, he couldn't get there in time. Well, Jesus interrupts his life and story. We read about this in the Gospel of John. And Jesus does two things that are very interesting that I think can help us put Lent into perspective as a community. One, he asks the gut-wrenching question, do you want to be well? And then two, he, he tells him to do something, to, to like get up, take your mat, and, you know, walk, dip your foot in. Uh, he, he encourages some action. Now, it will be really easy from our perspective to think, well, why would God let him do that or, or be uh, a broken physically for 38 years? Like, why wouldn't God heal him sooner? Why wouldn't God do more? Why did God ask him through Jesus, do you want to be healed? Why was he told to take a practical, physical step? Well, here's, I can answer that last one, is that God wants us to be participants in our own story of freedom and redemption. 
In fact, I think God has blessings set aside for you and I. Scripture says that there are good things prepared in advance that he hasn't given us because we haven't gotten ready to receive. Now, circling back to those other questions, it's important that when we read Scripture that we don't assume that our feelings about a story are more important or more accurate than the feelings of the people that the story is about. Because if you read that passage, the person who waited 38 years, it was worth it to have an encounter with Jesus. It was worth it to be healed. That person didn't walk away thinking, why didn't God meet me sooner? But instead, I'm so glad that God met me. That's the interesting thing about the book of Job. I just finished reading it, part of the Bible in one year with Nikki Gumbel on version. Part of me always gets like defensive of Job. And then I realize that, man, if Job is okay with how God has chosen to interact in his life, and I'm not okay with it, then that says more about me than it does about God and Job. Does that make sense? Like Job ends in, I think, chapter 40, like with an understanding of the goodness of God, with a relationship restored, not just that his things and relatives are now grown, that his crops and and animals and, and like livestock is bigger, but his heart and capacity to engage with God is bigger than it was before. So if Job's not upset, about how God intervenes in this story, then I probably shouldn't be either because I'm imposing my own belief, pseudo postmodern, quasi progressive, Western American, beanie wearing, hipster wannabe beliefs on people who aren't just characters in the story, but who are real souls who live lives, who had to grapple with the difficulties of life, who had to find God at the intersection of struggle and sovereignty, who had to meet the face of God and realizing that he won't always meet us the way we want, but he's always with us in ways we don't expect. It's this idea of solidarity. That's what the incarnation is. God becoming flesh to live amongst us in baby Jesus. And then as we observe Lent, as we lean into this Lenten season, we find that the story continues to build. And that's where we, we talk a little bit about practicals, right? Because Jesus is pretty practical. He, he wants us to be collaborative. In fact, in the creation narrative in Genesis 1 through 4, we read that there's this dynamic relationship that God clearly desires. And it's not a new one. He wasn't lonely. That's not why he created us. Stanley Grant's in Theology of the Community of God reminds us that God is community unto himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then he's just inviting us into that. See, God doesn't know individualism and the way our culture celebrates it. He's personal for sure, but he's always inviting us to do things with the plurality of who he is and then the plurality of who the body of Christ is. That's why during this Lenten season as Chi Alpha, we're going to be very intentional about doing things together. All right, so one of the ways we're doing that, hopefully most of you received these Lent journals and inside of them, is a reading plan, and we want to be reading and growing together as a spiritual family. Uh, we're going to be throughout this series seeing from different staff communicators, and on Thursday nights, if you're at Church Online platform on our website, they're actually going to be teaching on what you read that morning, so come ready, come hungry. As one of our alum used to say, Candace, it's the hungry kids in the kingdom that get fed. And then in your life groups, you're going to be discussing that day's reading, talking about Lent. What does it mean to position yourselves to draw near to God? Three times a week, we're going to get together over Zoom and do communal abiding. We did this over Lent. It was so great to meet some of you for the very first time. And 
what we do is we, we get on Zoom and and we we do our devotionals together because just because they're personal doesn't mean that they're private. In fact, the early church, the first believers of Jesus, they were part of what was called the Way. It was a Messianic Jewish movement. They would meet together every single day for communal abiding, for shared meals, and they practice generosity. You can read about that in Acts 1 through 4. And so we're going to lean into that. What I love about leaning into the liturgical or Christian calendar, even though I don't come from that background, even though that Chi Alpha isn't necessarily traditional or Catholic or Anglican, is that it helps us to create an order where there is a lot of chaos. And in my life and in 2021, I feel like there's a lot of chaos. And it's not us just creating something kind of willy-nilly. It's us leaning into what Christians, followers of Jesus have been doing for thousands of years. It's joining millions of believers currently as we pursue God together. There's something powerful about doing it together. Now, if we were kind of in person, aka normal life, whatever that was, we would probably be doing communal abiding maybe um, in, the, in the basement of the library at Georgetown in a quiet space or, or even in K Underground or SIS at American or the prayer room or kind of like the cafe at Embassy Church. But we're going to do it over Zoom. Is it ideal? No. Does it allow us to accomplish our vision of growing together? I think it does. It gives us an opportunity to do that. One of the questions that I'm asking and that I'm asking our staff to ask themselves and that I hope that you consider is the question that Jesus asked that man, what do you want from me? It wasn't a trick question then and it's not a trick question now, but if you're being honest with the desires of your heart, the dreams of your mind, the realities of your circumstances, what is it that you wish that God would do? Some of us have to hope again. We can't even imagine how this man and 38 years, every single day, hoped. Sometimes, to be candid, there's been periods in my story where I'm tired of going to the altar. I'm tired of asking for prayer in a chat or even in real life and and walking away and not having the answer, not having the physical healing, not having the emotional transformation that I so desire. But part of the Christian life is fighting to maintain the hope that God's working and that he's moving and that the best is yet to come. That's not easy. It looks great on a t-shirt, and it's very hard to live out in reality. But I'm thinking to John in the book of Revelation, what I consider the craziest, scariest book of the Bible, it's at the very end of the New Testament. There's this phrase that says, like, Jesus coming to knock on the door. It's kind of knocking on the door of our hearts, and he's seeing who will open it. And we tend to view that, if you've grown up in church or youth ministry, like, Man, Jesus is going out seeking people and inviting them to believe in him. But the context of that passage is actually believers. It's not people who are not yet believers or those that have rejected God. Jesus is going around in this vision that became the book of Revelation to believers asking, can I be let in? So maybe Jesus is asking you, knocking on your heart, knocking on your screen, will you let me into that area of your life? Maybe it's an area of deep joy that you've viewed as separate from him and don't realize it's his blessings that have gotten you there. Maybe it's an area of success where you've taken credit and you haven't realized that he's gifted you and prepared this for you. And man, he's doing it with you and and he deserves some of that honor. But maybe it's a difficult part of your story. It's, It's a habit. It's a sin. It's part of your past. It's something you've pushed aside. He's knocking at the door saying, will you let me in? Because where Jesus comes, there's freedom. And there's peace. Where Jesus is, 
there's hope and life. And I'm not just saying that to you. I'm saying that to myself. I'm saying that to myself today. And I think that's something that we can all lean into during this Lenten season together. One of the other things that we're doing is fasting and feasting. On Thursdays in your local time, we're inviting you, encouraging you to fast with us, to fast from food, to only drink liquids from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Now get this, we don't fast to get God's attention. We fast to give our attention more fully to God. Fasting is a spiritual discipline as old as the scriptures, and it helps us to replace something good with something great. Jim Collins in his business book, Good to Great, says that for companies, the greatest enemy to being great isn't failure, isn't poor products or marketing, it's good enough. That that's the the greatest barrier to companies becoming great. See, food is good. It's created for enjoyment. I mean, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. I mean, my life group, we kind of nicknamed ourselves and we view heaven as like unlimited, literally unlimited bread. We have the Zoom backgrounds to prove it. We'll show you another time. But fasting is about taking something that's good and that's needed and replacing it with something that's great and needed even more. So when I hunger physically, when I'm fasting, I'm reminded that that's the type of hunger and desperation I should have for spiritual food and spiritual things. Now, I think it's it's helpful to abstain from things like media, social media, uh, what have you at any given time. But biblically, fasting isn't about giving up something optional to get more of Jesus. That's a good thing. But fasting is giving up something needed because you need something more. Does that make sense? That's why fasting revolves uh, around food. But also, what I love about the God of Scripture, and this is not just Jesus, it's the God of the Old Testament, it's Father, you know, the OG. He was the God of fasting and of feasting. See, he's not just the God of uh, of duty, but he's the God of delight. My pastor Mark says sometimes we actually have to engage in duty until it becomes or turns into delight. We have to keep on practicing being in the presence of God until we find ourselves at a level of enjoyment that we didn't expect. It should feel like work. Your best relationships, <laughs> whether it's relationship to God, relationship romantically, relationship to a sibling or a friend, they take work. That's not a sign that they're not good or positive or working. It's a sign that they're valued. Okay. And so as we think about fasting, we got to remember feasting on our mission teams. And we take trips usually over spring break all around the country at times internationally to serve, to invest in our long-term ministry partners. We like to have a, a, a Jubilee day during the trip. Yeah, we usually do some sightseeing, but it's, it's more than that. It's about taking time with friends on this trip, on this team, abiding with Jesus extravagantly, enjoying some of our favorite things. For me, that's like ice cream and dumplings. It's about kind of slowing down and reflecting in God's goodness that we see the common grace of who he is in creation around us. It's about asking him to reset, to realize that we don't just work for God, that we allow him to work in us. And so we're fasting as a community on Thursdays, but we're feasting during Lent on Sundays. We're going to give you tips on how to do that. We'll write a few blog posts, put a few resources in your hands. But it's basically, how do you plan a day of intentional joy? And how do you do so without leaving the Lord out? 
That doesn't mean you need to read your, your Bible for 10 hours that day. I mean, I guess you could. I probably won't be doing that. But how do you spend a little bit more time with Jesus, a little bit more time with those that you love and that he loves? And then how do you enjoy created things? We were talking about this the other day. I can't remember who, but it's this idea of pleasure, and it kind of gets a bad rap in Christian circles. But see, God actually designed us for pleasure. It's just our own perversion and sin that causes us to seek pleasure in ways that God didn't design for us to find pleasure. So when you have that, you know, vegan chicken sandwich, that's my vibe, although I'm not vegan, I love it. When you have that bowl of mac and cheese, the Fruit Loop cereal, if you're German, you've got that Ben and Jerry's pint of ice cream. Like you should take pleasure and enjoy those things and get this as a believer, your connection to the creator should allow you to enjoy created things even deeper than if you weren't connected to the creator. So coffee, well, I mean coffee for me, I was going to say tea, but really mostly coffee and kombucha, like those things I should treasure and take pleasure in, in appropriate ways, of course, but I have a unique perspective to do that because of my connection to the creator. See, we get ourselves in trouble when we think that God doesn't want us to live lives of pleasure or joy. The reality is he wants us to live according to who we really are in him, not according to culture or the world's definition of joy or of pleasure. Does that make sense? I hope it does. So Lent isn't just about try harder, do better. No, Lent is about making space, clearing some things out of our calendar and our schedule, putting some things aside and inviting some things in so that we could go on a spiritual journey together. Maybe you'll ask this question with me in the staff. What do you want God to do? Where would you like Jesus to move in your life and in your story? And at the end of these 40 some odd days, how might our community look different. It's my prayer and my hope that we would live into the reality of James 4, that we would be like the man who responds to Jesus, yes, I want to be well, and that we would see Jesus act and move on our behalf.